Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, as the government brings forward its border opening, why do some families still have to wait? They're not easy decisions to make. My preference would be able, would, as a family person, would be able to reunite those families. But some of those decisions had to be made for the greater good to keep people safe. COVID isn't over yet. That's the message from teachers who are concerned about the ongoing impact in their classrooms. And switching the rough and tumble of the breakdown for the rough and tumble of politics. An extraordinary interview with the former Wallabies rugby captain who could soon be an Australian senator. Does Prime Minister Scott Morrison have integrity? <laughs> well, you'd have to say based on comments from those close to him, no, it, it seems like he will do whatever is politically expedient. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, podiatrist, plumber, midwife, vet. Just imagine you were a skilled worker in another country looking to move somewhere else right now. Why would you choose New Zealand? In most cases, we can't compete on wages. The cost of living is super high. So conditions with visa applications and residency pathways are critical. The government announced detail of its so-called immigration reset this week. And although business leaders are mostly happy, some analysts noted the reset looks more like a repackaging of our old immigration settings. I sat down at Parliament to go through the detail with Minister Chris Farfoy. In the context of our economic recovery, how important is migration? Oh, look, um, uh, I think we're going to have to watch uh, the flows in and out very carefully. I think they're just starting to emerge in terms of what might happen. I think things are moving very slowly in terms of movement of people. Uh, we opened up working holiday visa applications about a month and a half ago. We've got about 8,000 applications in. We've approved 6,000 and we're starting to see a trickle of people come in. So I think How important is it, though? Oh, it's extremely important. Uh, I think we've got to obviously have a critical amount of skills here um, and the offer that we make uh, and the tools that we give employers to be able to attract people here is extremely important. OK, let's talk about some of the measures you've introduced this week. And you've introduced a green list which opens up a path to residency for people who are highly skilled yeah. migrants. And it's a two-tiered system. So talk me through that decision. Why is it two-tiered? Look, I think there's some uh, skills that are extremely in demand. Uh, and then uh, there's some skills, and there's been some debate about the likes of nursing that are extremely in demand, but there's concern from sectors about making sure they can retain those workers uh, in the roles that we would like them to come and do. Uh, so, and that's really important. I think making sure that, you know, uh, for those extremely important roles uh, in both uh, tiers of those lists, giving certainty about uh, if we're trying to attract people here, that when they come, uh, they have certainty about being able to bring their families and lay roots down in uh, New Zealand is extremely important. So we've got a massive midwife shortage at the moment that I'm sure you're aware of. Why, why are midwives in Category 2 but doctors are in Category 1, for example? Similar. Um, the feedback that we got from... Uh, the sector about the likes of nurses and midwives is making sure that they stay in their roles. Uh, when people have open work uh, visas, when they have residence, they can get into roles and leave. There's some evidence that um, when people come from offshore and get into nursing roles that they might lose leave a bit sooner um, if they get residence and we want to make sure that we uh, can meet the needs of the sector to make sure that they have nurses in those jobs. Again, I think the important thing is making sure that they do have the pathway to residence, which they will do. Um, and, and again, I think in the nurses space, uh, my understanding is in the past we've had a very narrow ability for um, types of nurses to be able to come into the 
country. Now we're kind of broadening that to 13 types of nurses. So I think um, we're doing uh, all we can to make sure we can attract those kinds of workers here to New Zealand. It's a tough balance though, isn't it? Because you have to <coughs> attract people in these critical roles, be it nurses or midwives, yeah. But you also need to keep them in those roles. And you know, if you are to take a midwife, for example, looking to come to New Zealand, they apply under this green list program. That means once they arrive in New Zealand, they have to work for two years. And after two years, they can submit a residency application. Now, on current waiting times, that residency application could be yeah, two just, years. I, I might yeah, just well, push back on that because at that stage we would have cleared about 192,000 people through the 2021 resident visa. So um, the people that have been here on temporary work visas while we've been in uh, the, 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 the COVID settings for right. the last couple of years will be done. Um, so when, yeah. when, will, when will those be done? Oh, we, we, we've been. We've obviously uh, earlier this week said that we've pushed that time frame out by six months in order to give us a bit of space in terms of processing to be able to prioritise some of the likes of uh, accredited employer work visas, so um, migrant workers uh, and visitor visas into the country when we open up the borders. I've given um, them more time, but I've asked them to stick to the original time frame of 80% of those visas done by uh, done in 12 months. Um, We've given them some leniency, but our expectation is that they stay to the original time. So just to be 100% clear on that, and, and I know that with these different visas, things can get a bit confusing. So yeah. just to be 100% clear, you're talking about the 2021 resident visa. visa. Now, this is what you introduced in September of last right. year. And at the time, you said 80% of applications would be processed within 12 months. Now, right. to be clear, will 80% of those applications be processed within 12 months? Well, that's, that's the aspiration. Uh, earlier this week... It's the aspiration, but well, you're seeing the numbers come in at the moment. Well, and the numbers aren't good. We've, we've, done, we've processed about 20%, right? No, that's not right. I think we've got about 46,000 uh, visas that have been kicked out the door. My understanding is that of about the 25,000 visas that we got through phase one uh, and what we call phase 1.5, we've done about 20,000 of them. So we've actually got through most of the early stages of uh, the residency visa program. The second stage opened up in March. That's using a different technology platform. Uh, we've got uh, close to, I think, 90-ish thousand applications. Uh, and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start pumping those applications out. So what we've said this week is the original time frame, we're giving them six months more to do it. The commitment to those people to get residency doesn't wane, but we want to make sure we've got the processing capacity to do everything else that I, we've talked about I'm as well. I'm just getting confused here. So, so when you say that no, you're, it's you're quite throwing simple. it out by it's quite simple. Okay, you said we 80%. Said 12 months, yep. 80% in 12 months. This week we said 80% in 18 months, but I want them to keep to as, to as closely as possible to the original time frame. You were pretty explicit about that 80% in 12 months target. Yeah, but that was before we were opening uh, the border and other uh, visas we, need to we be could foresee, processed. We could foresee a border well, opening. Surely. Did you know when it was going to open? We didn't know when it was open. Well, so I knew we'll, they weren't going to be closed forever. Yes, but we need to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to get those residency visas uh, processed. And now we have to also make sure we can do in a timely way the likes of visitor visas so that when tourists want to come here, they can do that from non-visa waiver companies, uh, countries, uh, but also uh, the accredited employer work visa starts up on July the 4th. Let's go back to those uh, announcements. And you challenged me when I was imagining a midwife considering coming to New Zealand. So a midwife decides to come to New Zealand, comes in done under the green list, works for two years. After two years, that midwife can apply for residency in Correct. New Zealand. 
At that point, with the information that you have available right now, how long do you expect that residency application will take to process? Well, um, it should be quick. That's what I, that was the point I was like making. Like a year before. or? No, I don't think it should take a year. I think of what, you, what the point I was making is the people on shore, um, a bulk of those uh, in two years' time after that person uh, has arrived, uh, would have been through, uh, would have been through the residency visa. Uh, the people who have gone streamlined uh, would have had their visas already. So I can't give you. Um, um, an absolute time frame, but it'd be a lot quicker than when we had in the past. I'm, all I'm trying to do is imagine this through through the eyes of someone considering coming to New Zealand, because the truth is we can't compete on and wages the most, with the likes And of the Canada. most important thing that we can say to them now is that they're coming, whether it's straight to residence or a two-year work to residence, that you'll be eligible for residency when you get here. You'll be eligible after two years to apply for residency, right. but what we can't tell them is how long it'll take, which means that if you, well, for example, just, just, just let me finish, two years for example, if you wanted to buy a house, if a midwife came to New Zealand and thought, I'm going to set up in New Zealand, I'm going to buy a house, they're looking at where to move at the moment, they say, right, Australia pays us better, Canada pays us better, but maybe New Zealand gives us a faster application when it comes to residency, and they say, well, actually, we can apply after two years, we don't know how long it'll take, we don't know when we could buy a home. It's hardly certainty, is it? No, but what I'm saying is, that in terms of the back office situation that we've got at the moment, the investment in technology and also the investment in resources, people, um, that we think we're going to be able to get the time, types of visa processing, which um, whether rightly or wrongly people have perceived to be um, a long time, will be much streamlined and smarter in the future. I think one of the issues that we've had with the likes of residency applications in the past is it's been paper-based, that will all move online. I think, one of, again, one of the frustrations with us and also people who apply is that if something's not right in the application, you get a to and fro of the application. That won't happen now. If you don't have all the paperwork, you won't be able to submit the application online. So we don't get the delays that people have experienced in the past. So I think um, the technology changing from uh, you know, a paper-based system to an online system, I think is going to make a big difference to the user experience. Why July 31st? Because that's the the assessment, we originally obviously in February we said October, mm. we've been watching the border settings, whether it be um, health, uh, whether it be um, as we stage our opening uh, in terms of other visa holders, whether we have the capacity to process. Uh, and we obviously said back in February that we want to do that as soon as possible, so to be able to bring it to... So, so why July 31st, why not tomorrow? because we need to make sure that everything is ready. We need to make sure that uh, if people are going to come to New Zealand, we've given time for the likes of airlines and airports to get ready. It's uh, a complex dance to be able to try and get uh, everything back to normal. It's easy to close the border, it's more difficult to open it. So is uh, airlines the reason that we're not bringing no, that data? there are many factors. What, um, what are the predominant factors? Look, I think uh, making sure that things are safe is obviously the, the, the important issue. We've obviously um, well, what's going to change between now and well, July 31st? Uh, at the beginning of the year, when we did this, we hadn't quite got through um, the Omicron outbreak. We knew it was coming, uh, and we wanted to make sure that if we opened the borders, uh, that uh, we could deal with that, uh, and our health system could deal with that too. I think we're pretty confident that while we're not out of the worst of it, uh, that our health system uh, is geared to be able to deal with things. So, so and again, what's the difference between now and, and July 31st? Well, Jack, I'm saying it's a number of factors. I've said health, it's making sure the logistics are right, it's making sure we've got the visa processing uh, visa processing right. We said October... That's, it, that's the, the one, though, isn't it? It's, well, the, visa, the, one, it's that, the visa processing. Well, that's the one that I'm responsible for. Yeah. But, you know, we've still got to work through our, our regime for making sure we're vigilant about um, assessment of variants at the border as well. So when all of those things come together, we are confident that July 31st is, is the right time. You've had two years to prepare for some point when we would open the borders. Two years to prepare for this date. Shouldn't you be more organised? I think we're extremely organised given the challenges that we've got.
um, when the border was closed, our staff were still processing the likes of border exceptions, critical purpose visas. We let 30,000 people through to do critical work when the border was closed. Then we asked them to make 165,000 people uh, back in uh, September or October of last year residents. Uh, then we assessed um, what was a movable date in terms of uh, opening up our border. We've decided July 31st. We think we can manage all of those factors and get the visas processed in time. Um, as I've said, uh, I've been advised about making sure we can manage that resource uh, and I'll get grumpy if they don't. You've done nothing to address the problem of split families. So can you explain to me, why can a tourist visit from England tomorrow, but families from many African or Asian countries who have been separated for the last two and a half years yeah. can't wait until, have to wait until after July 31st? We made a conscious decision that we actually announced in February about make, taking a staged approach. We talked about uh, working holiday visas coming at first because we wanted to make sure that we did everything we can. So, so why are split families at the very end of that list? Well, they're not. Some have been... Who, who comes after split families? Well, uh, if you're talking about families from non-visa waiver countries, yeah. that will be able to come in at 31st. Like so India, for example. We have a lot of, we have that, a lot of migrant Indian workers in New Zealand whose families have been separated. That's one example. So, so why, why are they at the very end? Because they are part of the cohort that get to come in on July the 31st. We've also, when we opened up, to yeah, visa so, waiver so, countries, so, yeah, so, we've been so, able to reunite families. So, so why are they last? Well, it's the nature of opening a border. How? When we, we, we said to, that we'd open up to visa waiver countries, um, those families that needed um, that process uh, to happen in order to reunite uh, could reunite. Uh, again, we, we, no, they can't. For families, families from if you have a, a worker in New Zealand from India whose families, which, which is a non-visa waiver country, right? Exactly. So if you're a visa so, waiver country, so I'm country, asking you why? why yeah. So you've got visa waiver countries, which are you know predominantly European, for example. But then you take a country like India, from which we have a lot of migrant workers, and you have families who've been split for two, two years. Because this is the decision that we took in terms of taking a staged approach to reopening the border. Um, there, are, there are lots of people, whether they have families or not, from non-visa waiver companies, countries that haven't been able to enter and will be able to do that from July the 31st. I'm very sympathetic to those cases. We want to make sure that we can get them uh, back together as soon as possible, which is why my preference was not October, but to do that as fast as possible. We're able to do that on July the 31st, um, but we also had to make sure we're doing that in a safe way. So is it not safe to let in people from India at the moment? No, but when, when, we were making, when we were taking our overall approach to reopening the border, mm. we always wanted to make sure that we're doing that in a managed and safe way. Wouldn't the kind thing to do be to say, OK, we're not letting in tourists from non-visa waiver countries right now, but if you have family and you've been separated for two years by this pandemic Look, I, I and we're letting in tourists from the UK... I, I understand, absolutely how, I understand how difficult it is and at many stages during the last two years, my preference would have been to do something else. But we've had to make decisions that mm -hmm. put safety uh, and uh, re safe reopening of the border at the heart of every decision we make. They're not easy decisions to make. Mm. My preference would be able, would, as a family person, would be able to reunite those families. But some of those decisions had to be made for the greater good to keep people safe. That is Minister Chris Farfoy. Stay with us. I'll ask him about hate speech after the break. Hawke Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Immigration New Zealand has faced criticism for long delays in visa processing times, but Chris Farfoy is promising that's going to change. Under the Level 2 border reopening earlier this year, you promised 20,000 critical workers would enter New Zealand. In order to qualify, they had to earn 1.5 times the medium wage. So three months on, 
I think by the latest numbers, fewer than 500 have been approved of that 20,000, so 2.5%. By the end of March, two months after your announcement, just six had arrived. Where are the workers that you promised? Well, this is what I was talking about before. Um, the post-COVID people flow uh, is uh, a very interesting thing to watch. We made that... Uh, we made that... Um, we gave that ability for people to come in at 1.5. Um, we, we can't um, control what kind of jobs are available, but when the border was closed, this is the kind of thing that companies were asking for to make it easier for them to hire people. And again, this was at a point where there were still closed borders, Jack. So I think what we're seeing is that things are still in their very early stages, and while we'd like people to come here as fast as possible, I think you're starting to see um, the beginnings of people moving more freely, um, and we need to make sure that we meet uh, demands of businesses who have had border closures. But, you know, it's early days in terms of the, the border opening. In 2017, when Labor took office, a visitor visa took 21 days to process. Today, according to the Immigration New Zealand website I checked this morning, five months. In 2017, an essential skills visa took 69 days to process. Now, according to the website, five months. Residency visas up to this point have been taking years, in some cases, to be processed. Why is it that under your watch, and with the borders closed, with very few migrants arriving in New Zealand, we've seen massive blowouts in the time it takes to process well, you, You've probably chosen the visas that aren't prioritised at the moment, Jack. The borders have been closed for two years. We haven't been letting visitors in, so visitor visas have not been a priority. The, the, the processing of any visitor visas are, uh, are usually extensions of visitor visas of people who are already in the country. Essential and, skills? Five and months. We, and, and we have made sure uh, that we're extending those visas. Again, Essential skills are usually of people who are already in the country while the borders are closed. And again, we've extended, extended a lot of those visas. The visas to look at in terms of the processing capacity are the likes of the 30,000 critical purpose visas uh, that we've let in over the last two years. Those critical workers that we had a, had a bar and a threshold mm. to let in, about 95% of those were done within 16 and 20 days. We've had border exceptions when we work with sectors like the primary sectors to bring in the likes of sharers or farm machinery workers or or, or um, f fishing crew, they are the ones that you should look at and the ones that I we've mean, actually been able missing, to turn You're missing around. your own target by six months for the visa that you only introduced in September of last year and were explicit about setting targets for and it at the time. And, I, and I've also said that we've done 46,000 between when they'd opened uh, and now. And I think uh, with phase two, you'll see, a, you'll see those coming on board too. Immigration New Zealand has 20% fewer staff than before the pandemic. Who's responsible for that? We closed some offshore offices because uh, that was becoming difficult and we didn't have control over whether those staff could work. But we've also, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, um, increased our staff here in New Zealand by 230 and probably will do more. Um, again, I probably think... Probably will do? Or, or well, we'll, we'll have to watch the, the, the flows of visas. I think that I think you'll probably criticise me if I've hired too many staff and they're um, sitting around twiddling their thumbs. I don't think that's going to happen, but we're, we're prepared and looking at doing that. I think, again, the important investment in technology to make sure that we're move from what has been a paper-based system to an online system will make the user experience much different. There's been a lot of focus on timeframes. I'd ask that you look at the, the visas that have been actually been processed and prioritised over the last two years to make sure we can get people through the border while it has been closed. Well, I mean, timeframes are the things that people who are considering moving to New Zealand are going to be looking at right now. Over the next 18 months, how many residency applications do you expect to approve? Look, obviously, we're looking to do uh, the, 
the remainder of the 2021 residency visas. So I think my simple math is about another 150,000 right. to go for that. And in terms the green of list? In individuals. Well, again, that comes down to how many people we can attract to the, to the country. So, so, but is it capped? No, it's not capped. We've, we've so if we had a quarter of a million so, applications, well, we'd accept I, I, them all? Well, I'd, I'd love for that kind of demand for New Zealand uh, to, to live in New Zealand and fill that skills to, to, to be able to be a reality. But as, I, as I've said a couple of times, we're just starting to see the picture of what people movement uh, is emerging at the moment. We need those skills. Um, I think when we were at the Business New Zealand uh, lunch the other day when we announced this, um, there's obviously a demand for businesses to get these skilled workers. Our job is to make sure that we give them the tools to enable to attract those workers here long term and make sure that we can uh, give them the best possible tools to attract those workers. Do you have a ballpark figure? Look, I, again, I think it's difficult to understand what the flows in and out uh, in the very early stages of, of borders reopening. No word yet on the skilled migrant visa, or as viewers might know, the old point system. Yeah. Do you plan to introduce that? Look, we're, we're going to reintroduce it once the application window for the 2021 resident visa closes in July of this year. So I expect in August and September that we'll be able to uh, look at that. That's, again, um, if you think about the people who are going to apply for residency who are not um, on the green list uh, and who are not in, in the RV, there'll be very few. We would have got through 190,000 people. Um, so the demand from onshore um, will be very low. Um, again, it'll be a points-based system, we think, but whether or not we get the settings right with the green list uh, and the RV and the new SMC, we're, we're still sorting out. Switch out immigration for a moment, put on justice. What's happening with hate speech laws? Look, in the next couple of months I think we'll have some more news. Um, it's obviously a pretty complex uh, area. I think we probably learned a lesson uh, when we put the discussion document out about just how fraught it can be. Um, we want to make sure we get that right. Um, we've got some advice from officials that we're still yet to take to my colleagues around the round table. Um, but we're committed to making sure um, that we meet uh, the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Um, I think many of us have spent time down in Christchurch and know the, how serious it is uh, for that community to make sure that we get those kinds of things right. Um, uh, and, and I think we'll be able to speak about that more in a couple of months. Will those laws pass before the next election? Well, I'm not going to preempt the conversation I have with my colleagues. So. What's your expectation, though? Look, I, my expectation is that we can make sure that we keep our commitment to the Royal Commission. Um, I, I don't want to preempt the decisions that um, Cabinet makes, uh, but we'll take some options to them soon. You're a busy minister, right? You, you are spinning a lot of plates. How have you found the balance of your portfolios this time? Oh, I'm just a humble former journalist, Jack. <laughs> I know that no, no journalists, let alone telly journalists, are ever humble. Oh, look, it, it's busy, um, but I like it. Um, the last couple of years in immigration have obviously been a challenge because at times when you want to use levers, they haven't been available. But I think it's heartening that we've been able to talk about the border reopening uh, and get our immigration settings in place uh, at, at Professionally and politically uh, and policy-wise, it feels good to be able to get those big issues out the door. We've obviously made some announcements and broadcasting recently again yeah. that mean uh, the kind of change that we've talked about in terms of the manifesto can be affected. To the best of your knowledge, will you still be the Minister of Justice and the Minister of Immigration? And you can ask my partner that. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, obviously the Prime Minister's talked about things and that's up to her. To the best of your knowledge? Well, I, I, I'm not in charge of uh, who gets uh, which portfolios. I know you're not. That's why I'm asking. To the best of your knowledge, will you have those portfolios uh, in six I months? I serve at the pleasure of the Prime Minister. Do you want to be holding those portfolios in six months? I love the job that I've currently got. Um, I serve at the pleasure of the Prime Minister. 
Minister Chris Farfoy, if you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Coming up, just imagine if Richie McCaw ended his rugby career, hung up his boots and then ran for Parliament with a campaign for climate change justice. That's what his former opponent, Wallabies captain David Pocock, is doing right now. We've got an interview you have to see. Kia ora welcome back. Public polling shows New Zealanders are increasingly less concerned about the pandemic. But our education system is still in the throes of the fight. Even though the Omicron surge has passed in some parts of the country, the pressures in the classroom haven't eased. Here's Fena Owen. Term two has only just started, but for teachers, the school year has been brutal. It's just been horrible. It's been so stressful. So stressful. Thankfully, I don't drink. <laughs> it's really hard. I've definitely struggled. Um, as a, in my own mental health and my own mental health journey um, in terms of just remaining consistently upbeat and positive when you are consistently pulled in so many different directions. This is Mamaku and this is Mamaku School. Last term when the teachers or their families were hit with COVID, the school had to be closed. When it opened, half of the school community kept their children at home and online learning was a struggle. Our fibre's not great here in Mamaku. Um, we're even our cell phone coverage, yeah, I mean, there's only certain cell phones that even operate in our community. And some of them don't have the devices at home? They're absolutely not. A teacher for 30 years, Joe Collier has seen the growing demands on teachers recently with COVID and societal changes. It's balancing that for our own lives as teachers, uh, you know. Um, as people. That's right. As, yeah. Yes, and, and finding that, that time, um, yes, to... to to be able to plan for the next day, to, to have family time. I mean, I try and get to the gym. The pressures have magnified and the tensions that come with the pressures have magnified. So, uh, for instance, a family at home with three children, you know, their parents might have lost their job or they might have only received 80% of their income and that compounded their pressure, which compounded the pressure on the child and then the child's supposed to come to school and we're supposed to pretend that everything is just great. So when they walk through the door, they feel safe, that everything is the way it's supposed to be, tickety-boo at school. And it became hard to maintain that all the time. In Canterbury, Pauline Triffin teaches young children who have known nothing but COVID. The children I work with have only worked, only come to school in a COVID world. And in Canterbury, unfortunately, we have you know the earthquakes followed by the March 15th, followed by COVID, um, everybody. We pretend that we're resilient. At some point, we can't be resilient anymore. And the kids that are coming through now have only ever had an interrupted school year. So that's another concern for teachers, the lack of established routines and the impact of the COVID experience on the children. I work with intermediate children predominantly, so that's 11, 12 and 13 year olds. And the social impact is particularly big, um, particularly at that age. For them, it's about social and emotional well-being on top of your reading, writing, maths and curriculum based stuff. And so it's really important for them to have that connection. We're missing that at the moment. It's fidgety, jittery, um, uh, answering back. 
<laughs> to the, because when the children are in a heightened state because of the anxiety, right, uh, then they're already here. So if something happens in class, it, it doesn't have to be a big thing, and then they just go... Pew. So there are more anxious children as a result of COVID. Um, Have you noticed that? Oh, definitely. And, and the mask wearing is a factor in that anxiety that, that has developed. And that's, that's part of why I've had to take my mask off, to show um, the emotions that, you know, it's OK, kids. Hi. Although the possibility of a return to full mask wearing in schools has been discussed this week, Education Minister Chris Hipkins emphasised this is not government policy. These teachers are prepared for anything. If that's what's required, that's what I'll do, but it's really difficult. Pauline would like the Ministry of Ed to address the financial pressure schools are under. The, the resourcing, it's not there, and we need it. And $2 million was put into mental health last year. We don't know where that is. Oh, clever. And as schools manage their own budgets, teachers can take on guilt about spending it. So then you're at the point where... Do I call in sick or do I go for that PD because the school can't afford both? And it shouldn't be that way. We should all be upskilling whenever we can and still feel like if we're unwell, we can stay home. So that was a bonus that I actually got to have lunch. Get the spinach out, please. Yes, teachers have lives outside the classroom. In Tauranga, Nick Smith has had to juggle the stresses of teaching in the time of COVID with managing her immunocompromised sons who've been home all year. Like Pauline, she insists her region is lacking in mental health support. More counsellors in schools because of what the kids are, have gone through and what they're still going through. Well, I just try and reassure my class each day, oh, everyone's OK, and, you know, some people are working from home, some people are at school. To try and normalise it. Absolutely. Yeah. Now okay. that we're in the third year of it, I mean, you know, COVID's been around now for two years, we've got to see it as a normal part of life. We're also moving into cold season and flu season and things along those lines. The impacts are still yet to be felt in the long run. <laughs> Ultimately, I think teaching is the greatest profession in the world. I genuinely think that. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was impactful and important. Our ultimate focus is the well-being and the welfare of our kids. Fina Owen with that report. Hey, it's a big week on the political calendar. On Monday, the government will announce its emissions reduction plan, and on Thursday, of course, it is the budget. I'll be hosting the One News Budget special, so join us from 2pm on Thursday on TVNZ1 as we bring you the detail and analysis. After the break, just a few months ago, celebrities like Matt Damon and Spike Lee were shilling for cryptocurrencies. But now crypto is crashing. Could all of us get hurt? What are cryptocurrencies actually worth? Just a few weeks ago, Warren Buffett, one of the richest people in the world, gave a pithy answer. Now, if you told me you owned all of the Bitcoin in the world and you offered it to me for $25, I wouldn't take it because what would I do with it? Now, cryptocurrencies and the closely related NFT market are in trouble. Just have a look at the trajectory of Luna, which just last week was the fourth most valuable cryptocurrency in the world. Uh, now, it is basically worthless. So what? Big deal, you might reckon, but there is concern from some economic analysts that cryptocurrency volatility or a crypto crash 
could impact the wider economy. Our panel of experts is business commentator Rebecca Stevenson and editor of the excellent car car newsletter Bernard Hickey. Kia ora kōrua. thanks for being with us. I'll start with you Bernard. It has been an incredibly volatile week for an incredibly volatile asset class. What have you made of this week's crypto crash? Well, it's been gut-wrenching for those people who have their money in some sort of crypto asset, particularly because this week we saw the breaking of the buck of one of the stablecoins. Now, it wasn't the biggest one, but to actually see something that was supposed to be locked in step with the US dollar completely disintegrate uh, really surprised a lot of people. And it forced the biggest stablecoin, which is called Tether, to actually break its buck. Now, not completely as badly as the, as the first one, Terra, but it, it really has shocked people who had become used to uh, cryptocurrencies becoming part of the real world. There were investment banks and central banks looking at using them and trying to understand them, but this has really thrown the whole industry back by about a trillion dollars in value. Yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I, I, I know that there are many people for whom cryptocurrencies are all still a little bit ethereal and confusing. Can you just tell us a little bit more about those coins that are supposedly tethered to real currencies? Yeah, actually, when you look at the crypto industry, uh, a lot of the action has been around these stable coins. Mm. The idea being that you are effectively buying a crypto asset, which is a lot more stable than pure cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And uh, that's the thing that you've actually been using to trade or to get in and out of cryptocurrencies. Because one of the problems, which Warren Buffett identified there earlier in a very simple way, was that for most people, you can't actually use cryptocurrencies to buy anything. It's also not a very stable store of value, as we've seen. It's halved in value since November. So for a lot of people, they're in the crypto market Mm. through these stable coins and the exchanges around them. And Coinbase, which is the biggest of the exchanges, it has also collapsed in value in the last three or four months, which is unnerving those people who saw the stable coins as a way to connect to the real world in in a safer, more useful way. Bex, what have you made of the volatility this week? Well, I think as Bernard has rightly pointed out, it's been really devastating for a lot of crypto investors. And while we've seen, you know, people sort of pile in and sort of mocking crypto bros and, you know, I saw Ryanair, for example, has very quickly cranked out an advertising campaign mocking crypto bros as now no longer being able to fly private and now you're stuck with a budget airline. You know, for every sort of person that has done well and has dined out over the last few years with crypto um, because it has been doing extremely well, there are also just average regular investors and their tales of devastation and the financial pain that they're going through is actually, you know, really quite um, touching and affecting. And I think we do need to remember that at involved in all of these um, investors being washed out are real people. You know, a lot of the um, message boards on Reddit and social media, you know, people are reaching out to each other and giving support. The top um, rated posts on a lot of those social boards is people giving each other advice about how to reach mental health helplines and crisis centres and things like that. 
So, you know, these are very complicated and tricky investors, investments, but they became very mainstream. And I think we saw some really interesting signs as to how mainstream crypto has become. You know, a week ago with the Formula One in Miami, the inaugural Grand Prix there was brought to you by Crypto.com. You know, I decided to punish myself and watch the Warriors a little bit last night. There was crypto advertising all over the field. Um, a year ago, we had the Financial Markets Authority ask New Zealand investors for the first time whether they had invested in crypto and they were told that 13% had and we also have seen crypto now you know become an MLM a multi-level marketing scheme where we're mm. seeing you know women in America selling crypto to their friends and neighbors so I think we do need to keep in mind that this is not sort of an isolated thing now and the impact of these crypto wipeouts to these people and to these investors is very real and very painful. Bex, you reported a lot on Cryptopia, that the local cryptocurrency exchange that went into debt and owed creditors millions of dollars. What did that tell you about the crypto industry? Yeah, look, that was a really interesting case because one of the things that people say in particular about um, those crypto organisations like Cryptopia that work in New inside New Zealand is that there are some levels of uh, support and assurance around that mm. because they do offer what's considered a financial service. So the Financial Markets Authority is a little bit involved, but outside of that, crypto is you know, unregulated and therefore quite, quite frightening and a risky investment. Um, but what we found with Cryptopia was there was a number of things that had happened inside that business. There was theft. Um, by someone inside the business of people's keys which secured mm. their wallets um, and there was also a hack you know which still hasn't really been identified as to who was behind that hack and then even after the business was liquidated you know investors who had um, coins and wallets and things hooked up inside Cryptopia actually haven't had any relief even though we have Grant Thornton you know a very high profile well-known liquidator in charge of that it's just become a very long and winding legal road of trying to chase coins, find the wallets, hold them. You know, in the meantime, yeah. I think it's something like 900,000 people were into Cryptopia. You know, none of them, as far as I'm aware, have seen a cent back, you know, regardless of all the protections. Yeah. Um, and Grant Thornton seems to be doing fairly well out of it. You know, they've set up um, sort of a customer service portal around Cryptopia. But in the meantime, you know, you have these thousands and thousands of of investors who still are yet to see anything back. Bernard, you mentioned before that the losses in cryptocurrency amount to about a trillion dollars at the moment. Are those losses likely to affect investors who have stuck to more traditional forms of investment? Well, one of the really interesting things about investments in crypto, not just in New Zealand but all around the world, is there's a brand new generation of investors, as Bex mentioned, who've never really been in the markets before, and this is their first experience. Often, they're a little bit uh, desperate, to be frank, to get the sort of massive gains that they have seen others get with crypto, in part because they need those massive gains to be able to get a deposit on their house. That is a real concern, that those people with their first experience with investing are being wiped out in this crypto crash. The other thing that's worth caring about from a global financial crisis or global financial point of view is that the stable coins are a concern for central banks and others who try to keep financial systems safe because uh, in particular uh, uh, Tether, the biggest one, 
says that its $80 billion or so is backed by real assets, so bonds and mm. cash and things, but they haven't been completely transparent. And if there is some sort of uh, real pressure on Tether and it has to sell tens of billions of dollars worth of corporate bonds, treasury bonds, you could see the crypto crash leak into the real world, the real markets of uh, what's, what we've seen in the United States and Europe. And it is interesting that central banks are increasingly looking to regulate these stable coins. And China, for example, just simply banned uh, cryptocurrencies completely, not just the mining of them, but the use of them, because they see now the, the risk of a threat to the real economy. Mm. Yeah, how bad would it be, Bex, if uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were to completely crash? How would that affect the wider economy? Bernard has sort of nailed it on the head there. It's the fear of that contagion effect. You know, that investors and people who are sort of wiped out in crypto then get nervous and that sort of uh, contagious spills over mm. into other asset classes. Um, so it could be really interesting. I mean, look, when we have that situation where now we have real concerns about this unregulated um, assets sort of tipping over and then affecting other things that we do have control over, we're going to see regulation. You know, we've already seen um, the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen float the idea of um, <clears throat> regulating cryptocurrencies and also the US Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell mm. has also talked about that as well. And of course in New Zealand we've had our Finance Select Committee looking into cryptocurrencies with an eye to perhaps potentially regulating and trying to take some of that risk out of that market. Mm. You know, it has grown like topsy and we are now seeing that it's become so big that it could potentially affect other asset classes, which, you know, is a, yeah. is a big concern. Very, very quickly before we let you two go, it is a big week, of course. The budget will be released on Thursday, so we want your hot takes. I'll start with you, Bex. What are you looking for in the budget? Well, I know I won't get what I want, so <laughs> um, I think we'll probably get more of the same. I mean, look, I've long wanted the government to do something about tax bracket creep. Um, I understand the arguments against it, but I think it's something they really do need to think about. You know, it just shouldn't be that so many New Zealanders who earn what is really relatively, you know, not high wages are in the top tax bracket. You know, I would like to see them do something about wow. that, but I think it's probably going to be fairly incremental stuff. Bernard? I actually think the big news is going to be on Monday when we get the policies announced for the emissions reduction plan. And remember, the government has $4.5 billion to spend there. That's going to be a big one. I think a big chunk of the $6 billion, which mm -hmm. the government's already confirmed will be the operating allowance for, for next year, will get used up in essentially dealing with the DHB restructuring. So there is a chance here. This is an in-between election budget where we don't get the big goodies. I suspect that's next year's budget. All right. Thank you both for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. Business commentator Beck Stevenson and editor of The Car Car, Bernard Hickey. After the break on Q&A, one of the world's best rugby players reveals he was pressured to stop speaking out about politics. I think sport has a long history of actually being part of social change. As Wallabies captain, David Pocock was a uniquely talented rugby player. A fast and physical loose forward, he was twice a finalist for IRB International Player of the Year. But his 78 caps in the green and gold will be remembered as much for his actions off the field as on it. 
At the height of his rugby career, Pocock was arrested for chaining himself to a digger as a protest against a new coal mine. And he declined to officially marry his long-time girlfriend until marriage equality was passed in Australia. Pocock retired from professional rugby 18 months ago and he's standing in Canberra as an independent candidate for the Australian Senate in next weekend's election. I asked him, why politics? It's been, a, it's been a wild ride so far. I'm not even in there. You know, for years, I've been saying that we need more people in politics who aren't career politicians and who don't actually need to be in there but want to represent the communities that they come from. And then last year was hassled by a number of people in Canberra uh, asking me to run as an independent for the Senate here in the, here in the Australian Capital Territory. And, you know, I, I love this community. There's some big challenges that we need to deal with in Australia, so I figured I'd, I'd put my hand up and, and have a go at it. Tell me a little bit more about that motivation, because we're familiar with some of your experiences speaking out about climate justice or social issues, but you just said to me that you think more people need to run for politics who don't necessarily need to run for politics. What do you mean by that? I, I grew up in Zimbabwe, and um, yeah, my family, we were kicked off our farm and, and managed to move to Australia. So, you know, politics was personal. It affected our everyday lives. And as an immigrant to Australia, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities that it has given me. And, uh, you know, fallen in love with this place, love living here. And you know, I think when you love somewhere, you want to make it better and, and, and contribute. And uh, I feel like it's given me so much that, uh, you know, I can, I can give back in this way and, and represent a community that, that I love and hopefully bring a different perspective and a, and a different voice. Running as independent, you don't have the political party um, lines that you have to toe or have to vote in a certain way. You can really get in there and, and talk about the issues that are affecting us and, you know, hopefully bring a little bit more uh, integrity to politics. I'm going to ask you about integrity in a moment, but, but tell me a bit more about the uh, independence of your campaign, because there's been a lot of attention in this campaign over the so-called teal candidates, the blue-green candidates who are looking to unseat Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Do you consider yourself a teal candidate? Uh, my campaign colours is kind of a navy blue so no um you know I, I think independents are threatening because they're connected to the communities that they come from they're able to actually talk about those issues and i really welcome the the scrutiny our prime minister here in, in australia for the first time in a decade is now talking about political donations and where they're coming from and i really welcome that and, and as an independent that's something that i will be pushing for to address because we all know that big money, big political donations in politics is corrosive. It, it clearly has an impact in the decisions that are being made that affect all of us. So I, I really welcome it and you can, you can see just how threatening it is to, to the major parties. Australia is already being hammered by climate-induced disaster. So why hasn't climate change action been more politically popular? Hmm. Yeah, if, if you listen to scientists, Australia is the developed country that will lose the most when it comes to climate and if we don't act. We also probably stand to gain the most. But what we're seeing here is a decade of politicisation of an issue that we really just have to find a pragmatic way 
forward on. As I mentioned, I, I think political donations are having a big impact on climate policy here in Australia, and we have to get past that. We're not playing our role in the international community, and we're certainly not playing our role in the Pacific and looking after and standing alongside our Pacific neighbours. Do you feel like things are changing in Australia, that there is more of an appetite for climate change policy? Yeah, we've seen a huge societal shift. The vast majority of Australians now want more ambitious climate action. The vast majority of, of coalition voters, voters who, who align themselves with the current government, uh, want more action. This is clearly an issue that we have to get on with, and there's going to be a lot of work to be done for the next parliament to actually play some catch-up and, and take advantage of, of the mm. big economic opportunity that it is for, for us as Australians. Climate action is a centrepiece in your campaign, but so too is integrity in politics. What is it specifically about Australian politics that you think has been lacking in integrity? I mean, trust in politics is, is at an all-time low, and it seems like it's been intentionally undercut. Um, we, ha we have to turn that around at a time when it's, it's more important than ever that we can actually trust our government and our institutions to make big decisions for us and turn these big challenges into opportunities. We're not seeing that. Here in Australia, there is currently no independent commission that can actually look at corruption in government and, and misuse of, of taxpayer funds. There are a number of independents who are pushing for that. It seems uh, common sense that we'd have that. And then the other, you know, the other things that I think should be on the agenda are political uh, donation reform and then truth in political advertising laws. Currently in Australia, come national elections, you can lie, you can say whatever you like, there's no laws against it. Uh, you know, I myself have had a big scare campaign run against me here based on lies and, and fabrication. I think voters expect more and, and we deserve more as, as citizens. There's clearly ways to deal with this. Yeah, we saw the campaign against you. And just to bring our viewers up to speed, uh, some of your opponents published billboards that showed you revealing that you're actually a hidden green candidate, a candidate for the Green Party. How did that experience affect you? Well, I guess truth in political advertising went from something that, you know, you know needs to be dealt with to something that was, was personal. You know, having, having grown up on uh, a farm and... Um, I guess coming from that, that farming background, I certainly wouldn't call myself a green, although I, I really believe we should be looking after the environment and playing our part when it comes to, to climate action. But this is clearly kind of the only thing that the, the, one of the incumbent senators has to try and divide and sort of uh, get, some, get some fear going around my campaign because it really is built around wanting to represent Canberrans on issues that are important to us. Does Prime Minister Scott Morrison have integrity? <laughs> well, you'd have to say, based on comments from those close to him, no. It, it seems like he will do whatever is politically expedient and uh, is fairly loose with, with the truth. Uh, I obviously don't know him personally, but we've seen a number of text messages and, and conversations leaked over the last year that would suggest otherwise. What about Labor leader Anthony Albanese? Uh, I don't know enough to comment. Uh, yeah, I think it's been fairly um, 
uninspiring here, here, here in Australia in terms of political leadership. There hasn't been a lot of vision for, for what our future can be of how we actually tackle the big challenges we're facing. And for me, that really does come down to how much issues have been politicised rather than it being about different ideas and different ways of dealing with these with these problems. And my hope is that independents can actually force the major parties to move beyond that and to find a pragmatic way forward mm. and to simply get action on these, these big issues that are facing us here in Australia around climate inaction, housing affordability, cost of living is a, is a huge issue across Australia at the moment. It is pretty extraordinary the way that you have used your public platform to advocate for change that is important to you. Should we expect rugby players to do the same thing, to take political positions or use their platforms to advocate for change? Um, I'm not going to tell anyone how they should uh, do things or live their life. Personally, they were things that felt important to me. I grew up as a mad uh, rugby fan. I knew what it was like to be that kid that looked up and idolised rugby players. And I figured if I could use whatever platform I had to talk about things that you know I thought were really important, actually get young people thinking about them and talking about them, uh, I wanted to try and do that. Didn't always get it right, uh, but yeah, it, uh, I enjoyed it. And in, in many ways, I felt like it, it kept me grounded and uh, was, was good for my rugby. Gee, that's interesting, because... In one sense, it was very brave, some of the, some of the positions you, you took at a time in your career when a lot of people would have said this guy should only be focusing on rugby. And I think, for example, about some of your climate advocacy at a time when the Wallabies were sponsored by Qantas, just as an example. Were there times during your rugby career that rugby officials or sponsors pushed back against your advocacy? Yeah, not everyone was happy, and you, you, I did get pushback. You, you, you're rocking the boat by talking about these things, but you know, I really tried to do it in a way where you're not uh, pointing fingers and, and blaming people. The reality is, is that we are all complicit in this system. Fossil fuels have have served us really well. You, you, you look around, and our, our standard of living. Uh, is high, but they're clearly not the way of the future, and, and we have to embrace a different way of doing things and actually turn that turn that into an opportunity for all of us. I'm going to be really cheeky here, only because we're meeting over the airwaves as opposed to over a ruck. Who who gave you the pushback? Who, who said that you should stay in your lane? Uh, yeah, people in in uh, rugby Australia, you cop it from. You know, rugby supporters who don't share your view telling you to stick to sport and that sports and politics don't mix. Uh, you know, I think sport has a long history of actually being part of social change and, and pushing society to think differently and, and be more inclusive. And I really think sport is at its best when it's challenging society to be more inclusive and to create you know, spaces and communities where people can actually be themselves and, and, you know, learn what it is to be part of a team, to feel feel like they're part of a community and they belong somewhere. That was certainly my experience as an immigrant to Australia and, I, you know, I would really love for that to be 
an experience that 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 everyone can have. Do you think you're going to win? <laughs> I wouldn't be in it if if I didn't think uh, I was in with the with a good chance. We're certainly building momentum. We've got over two thousand volunteers across Canberra, and you know I've been blown away by the support from you know, all sides of the the political spectrum. People who are tired of politics as usual and want to see it done better, and and that's my that's my commitment to people in the ACT. I, I want to represent them. I want to be accountable to them. Uh, and no one else. That is David Pocock. Cool mutu. That's Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. And mihi ki Thanks for your feedback. Don't forget, emissions plan tomorrow, budget Thursday. Big week. Hey, te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.